Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Andy Schachtel. He is the president and CEO of SourceFit. Andy is almost part of the furniture around the Philippines and the outsourcing industry. He has been running SourceFit for well over 10 years now and living in the country as well. It's interesting to track Andy's own background and journey. He started in uh, engineering, software development, and he has brought those skills and disciplines into his building of SourceFit. It's a really interesting story and our conversation uh, is very broad in terms of all things outsourcing. I certainly enjoyed it and learned a lot. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Andy, welcome to the show. You've, uh, I've seen SourceFit in the industry for, for many years now. You, you've, you've certainly known around the industry. Uh, what brought you to the Philippines? Let us know a little bit about your personal journey first, maybe. Uh, thanks, Derek. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I've been in the Philippines uh, since about 2009. And actually, I started SourceFit as an offshoot of a large-scale application development project, a software project that I did for Vodafone. I had some experience in delivering rich media content to the Vodafone networks around the world. And based on that, they asked me to build a social networking platform back for them back in the days of the flip phones and brick phones, the early days of um, mobile services. And it would be the first uh, large-scale mobile social network. And it was a huge project and we were a small company. So I knew I needed to outsource. outsource. So I first outsourced to India, but I had some issues there uh, with... Um, retention of my staff. Our partners at that time weren't really transparent with us. And so I was never sure how much they were being paid. And in addition, we had some issues with um, 
design sensibility, et cetera. So I happen to know someone in the Philippines who helped me to hire some developers directly there. And so we built a .NET development team in the Philippines and built the application, launched it on Vodafone networks around the world, and it was quite successful. So we built a customer service team and a content moderation team to support the application. And it worked out great. We were uh, operating that for Vodafone for several years. But then with the rise of the open internet on mobile and with the rise of Friendster and MySpace and eventually Facebook, Vodafone decided to exit the social networking uh, industry. So I repurposed the team to other telecom clients and that's how SourceFit was born back in 2009. And we've grown since then in the same way that initial project did where clients will come to us with a certain process that, they are, that they're interested in outsourcing. And then over time, they may identify other processes. Uh, so that's why as a company, we don't really focus necessarily on one particular vertical, but we try to understand the businesses of our clients and then offer them solutions that uh, work for their uh, unique uh, setup and way of doing business. And so uh, now we're about 1,300 employees. Uh, before the pandemic, we were all working from our offices here in Manila, uh, but now we have a mix of people working from home and then uh, also working in our offices. So it's a common path for people to scratch their own itch and you know, for their business requirements, develop offshore teams, and it looks like you've followed that. But very commonly as well, it, it's sort of in the simpler uh, non-technical tasks, but you started with very technical roles and that was, you know, a good number of years ago now, back uh, in the early 2000s. So how, how did you find that journey, starting your offshoring journey uh, in, in sort of a very technical domain nearly 15 years ago? Yeah, I think that, you know, our sweet spot has always been companies who've been disruptive, disruptive in their uh, respective industries through technology. And uh, so... Uh, we kind of speak their language. Uh, it's been an area where clients, just like we did or just like I did when I was on the client side, uh, they have uh, large aspirations, but they're limited not only by budget, but also by availability of good technical staff in local markets. Uh, so that's why they're searching uh, for great developers. And that's uh, more so the case now than ever before, uh, because there's just so much demand worldwide for, for talented developers. But then just as I did, uh, that's often just the base for growing their business into other areas, uh, like customer service or, um, back office, the other kinds of functions that they need to operate their entire business. But, uh, certainly, you know, technology is a constant, uh, the need for, for great talent, um, able to able to drive technology products is has been there you know way back uh, in the early 2000s to now but uh, really now now more so than ever and we're finding that uh, the labor market even in the Philippines is quite tight so uh, we recently opened a, an office in the Dominican Republic uh, and we're thinking of uh, expanding into other markets just to help us to meet the demand in certain areas where it's difficult in one country and how, you know, there's broad brushstrokes applied to outsourcing destinations. Like a lot of people don't think of the Philippines as a destination for developers. They think more Eastern Europe for developers, India for, you know, mathematics and uh, STEM and Philippines for more creative and customer service. But obviously you have built specialized teams in the Philippines. But as you say, now it's a, it is a very tight labor market. 
what are you saying to, or how have you seen the the more technical side of the Philippine labor force develop over the last uh, 15 years? Uh, and has it kept pace with, as you say, you know, the, the sort of ever-changing landscape of tech? Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, the, always the great benefit of working with developers in the Philippines is their ability to communicate well uh, and also their sensibility in terms of uh, user experience uh, and the way that people use applications in developed countries just because they've all grown up uh, using international applications as opposed to necessarily locally developed uh, applications. So that's always been a great plus if you can find the people. So it's just, uh, you know, once people find their developers, it's always really great. Um, it, you know, in the Philippines, it's just a matter of finding those people. And, and if clients have the patience to build their teams uh, systematically, as opposed to, you know, having to put on a large number of people all at once. Uh, so it's just for us uh, a matter of meeting demand, you know, as best we can. We're always going to try to find developers in the Philippines, but where uh, where people need more developers quickly, uh, that's when we would try to supplement it with other markets. And certainly, there are other countries who, you know, as as you mentioned in Eastern Europe in particular, where there's great um, developer talent, uh, and uh, that's also reasonable prices and. Uh, we've had great results in in our first forays in, into other uh, markets as well. But that's not to say that the Philippines will ever stop being uh, a place where we're going to find technology talent. But it's just uh, you know the worldwide demand is just so so great now. And even with uh, uncertain economic uh, times ahead, I think that uh, it just you know encourages tech companies to think more about their bottom line and uh, look in other markets for talent yeah yeah and i think it's a becoming a perfect storm isn't it because we obviously had a big surge towards remote acceptance of remote with covid uh, and then now as we head into recession and downward pressures then people are really gonna look at those remote options and uh, uh, look to go elsewhere and so as a bpo supplier and maybe also on the on the sort of other side of that coin as a as a client your preference or for building ideal teams do should people start with technical skills should they start with customer service basic administrative roles where do you see outsourcing really uh, what are the strengths of outsourcing would you say uh, for the the typical client yeah i mean i think it depends on on the needs of the client and you know we work with a lot of small and medium uh, sized companies and so of course uh, if it's their first foray into outsourcing, uh, they're going to want to take a cautious approach. So they want to start with roles that they feel most comfortable with, that they feel like they have a good handle on, and maybe they have already mature management processes in place that makes it easier for them. Maybe KPIs are already in place. Other ways for them to easily assess the productivity of their outsourced staff. So, so that's why a lot of our clients may start with junior roles in accounting or uh, augmenting their current customer service teams with a few members uh, offshore and then move towards um, higher level roles once they get confidence in the abilities of their outsourced team. But a lot of times if someone's building a single team or if they want us to build an entire team for them, uh, then we would recommend that they start with a, a senior resource so that that person can be part of the process for recruiting staff and building the team. 
Uh, so it can go either way, and it just depends on the client and what kind of resources they have available at their disposal locally as to whether they would want to start with a senior or with junior roles to, to mix into their uh, current team. But you know, we're flexible in the way we work, and I think it really just uh, there's no one formula for success. I think that uh, clients have to look at their own situation, and uh, as long as they're uh, they're engaged and that they're uh, putting clear expectations in place for for their outsourced staff, then I think that they can be successful um, using either uh, type of approach. And what is SourceFit's role in terms of setting up and building these processes and operations with alongside your client? Are you helping manage the processes, the deliverables, or is it more of a staff augmentation model where you ensure that they get the staff that they need, but then they are managing them day to day? Yeah, traditionally, uh, we we began with a more of a staff augmentation model where uh, our clients would have kind of a plan already, but they needed staff and then they would hire them and we would do the uh, recruiting, the HR support, the IT support. Uh, but then, of course, over time, we began working with clients who needed us to build entire teams and manage those teams. So we developed expertise in a, in a pretty wide range of verticals in um, recruiting the right types of people. We developed a training team uh, that had capability to train up resources in a, a wide range of different areas. Uh, our client success team uh, got experience in building KPIs, uh, helping our clients to um, you know put put forward the, the KPIs that would be most um, important in in you know the bottom line for their businesses. So. So that's why we moved to more managed services. And I think that now it's probably an even split of uh, staff, staff augmentation and managed services. And within those ma that managed services uh, offering, there's also a, a not a, a, a hard, fast line. Uh, some clients need more help. They need us to be more involved and they need more from us and other clients need less. So we can still, we try to you know, work with our individual clients and and whatever the needs that they have for their particular business to uh, to fill in the gaps, and then uh, and then uh, provide the service that they need. And then, but we try to always keep a, a certain uh, amount of transparency uh, because uh, that was my experience when I first started. Was the the lack of transparency really uh, <laughs> prevented me from really understanding the business? And so we try to emphasize that uh, to all of our clients. And I think that that's kind of a unique. Uh, proposition in managed services to have a high level of transparency. And I think our clients appreciate that, especially our SME clients who are used to that kind of transparency in their business. They're used to understanding uh, every aspect of it. And so they don't, well, they may want uh, a managed service provider to, uh, to suggest to them the KPIs to handle all of the training, to handle the performance. Uh, they still want to understand, you know, how much people are making, how, what is what is the makeup of my team uh, and who's doing what and those types of things, uh, which we try to offer as well. And you're from the US, Andy. How have you seen the other side of the market, the the clients, the businesses across US? Obviously, they're more aware now of remote, and I, I think that it is reaching this inflection point of widespread adoption, at least of remote and global work, and then that might sort of flow on to offshoring and outsourcing. Uh, but how have you seen the evolution of the market in your uh, time within the outsourcing industry? Is it getting easier to to sell the concept of offshoring 
resources? Yeah, absolutely, Derek. I mean, there's been a real sea change since the beginning of the pandemic, and it's really a great time to be in the outsourcing industry because acceptance, especially among SMEs, of uh, remote work uh, has completely changed. You know, because people were working remotely anyway. So if someone's working remotely down the street or in the next town over, why not hire someone for a fraction of the cost who can do the same work and who just happens to be sitting in another country? So, uh, so that plus the labor shortages that we've seen in developed markets uh, has created a, a kind of a perfect storm for, uh, for clients who might not have thought of outsourcing offshore before uh, who are now uh, doing it. And so we've seen uh, a, a big uptick in our growth and so we as a company are trying to take advantage of that uh, and, and um, make companies even more aware of how easy it is to outsource. And uh, as, as you know, economic conditions uh, become more unstable, uh, it's a great way for them to ensure you know, business continuity uh, and also uh, lower costs, competitive pricing um, going forward into the future. It's fascinating, isn't it? And where do you see that tying into the Central America, the nearshoring, uh, those provisions? Obviously, there is a significant advantage in that region because there's uh, more aligned in terms of time zone. And of course, there is the, the Spanish language. Uh, do you see that as a threat to the Philippines as a, or a complement? Or how do you see those two major markets colliding? It was interesting for us because I was surprised that there were clients that we weren't closing when we were just operating in the Philippines because they had some mandate to only work near shore just for a, from a comfort standpoint or a time zone standpoint. Uh, so that's one of the impetuses for us to establish a, an office in uh, the Caribbean. And uh, once, we, once we opened it, uh, we've seen that uh, there is a little bit of a different kind of um, mentality there. I mean, there is uh, an even closer bond with the United States in the Caribbean, even though the, the bond with the United States and the Philippines is already quite strong, just because there's so many people who have spent significant time in the States, uh, in the Dominican Republic. Lots of people grew up there. Uh, so there's an even higher level of cultural affinity uh, there than in the Philippines. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's uh, that it's a threat because uh, the number of the sheer number of great English speakers in the Philippines is uh, much larger uh, than in Central America or the Dominican Republic, uh, and there are really mature processes in the Philippines. Lots of talent uh, with a lot of experience providing customer service in the United States, and that you know that that mature market creates training opportunities, educational opportunities uh, to uh, to bring up the next generation of. Of people who will be working in this industry, so I think that that momentum will uh, continue and make the Philippines uh, a leader into the future, especially in those kinds of areas uh, like um, customer service, design-oriented uh, jobs, um, CAD and uh, construction uh, estimation, those types of roles as well, back office. Uh, but but uh, augmenting that with the Spanish language capability of the Caribbean. Uh, and a little bit of, of a, a different sensibility there, a different uh, type of uh, affinity with the United States. Uh, just ha- you know, it helps us to have both, and I see the you know the strengths of both sides. But I don't think it's necessarily a, a threat to the Philippines. But you know, the Philippines still has to has to to you know not rest on its laurels. 
Um, there needs to be a lot more investment in education, uh, in language ability, uh, in especially value-added types of services, but not only tech and IT, but also accounting and back office roles. Those are, those are kinds of roles that are not going to be replaced by automation anytime soon. So uh, there needs to be that investment uh, to continue to, to provide the, the kinds of uh, resources that the, that the industry needs. Yeah, the the you know industry has been going about thirty years now, and of course the Philippines and India were early entrants to that market. And you certainly hope that over the three decades there has been this accrued uh, talent and experience and sort of organizational structure that these new entrants to the market just simply don't have. I certainly hope that is there, and you do see yeah, that exactly. within the um, more executive levels of management, and there's just longer levels of experience, exposure, tenure, um, that certainly I think weighs out. But you are right. It, it's um, it's a position where I think the Philippines can't rest on it on its laurels and it really has to continue to upskill and build that sophistication, doesn't it, in terms of um, exactly what the industry is offering. And I think being based here, Andy, as well, you know, we, we take for granted what we do know and, and the sort of perspectives that we do have. And it's Often it, it is a bit more foreign for people when they start working with an offshore workforce. Was that the same for you when you entered the Dominican Republic uh, for the first time? Did you have to relearn? You had to sort of, you know, make these cultural adjustments to how you sort of manage and integrate teams? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, we have a lot of years of experience, but then you don't really know what to expect. What are the nuances of culture? Because that's one of the things that's um, that can trip up people coming to the Philippines is they see it on the surface as being so westernized and they look around and they see the Kentucky Fried Chickens and McDonald's, et cetera, and they see how well people speak English and everyone's so friendly, but still there are cultural differences you know, that, that people need to understand in order to work effectively. And so having that experience, then you go to a new market and you see again that people are very welcoming and they speak great English, but it's just like, Okay, where will the differences be? What you know, do I need to adjust uh, in terms of thinking, in terms of you know how we're going to train people, how we're going to manage people? Um, you know, we we need to make sure that we're not just applying things, you know, the lessons we've learned blindly. That we that we also are listening and watching and learning from people who've already done it or people who have experience, um, you know, already locally there in those markets uh, to make sure that we're. Uh, working as efficiently there. And, you know, we try to, we try to implement universal processes, but, you know, what we've learned is, is that only goes so far that you have to, um, you know, plan things universally, but then you really have to act locally and adjust locally uh, to the market conditions in each country. Yeah. And going forward, do you think that, like, what is the best? There's, there's an explosion of these remote teams now and, you know, kind of borderless employment. But and and also you know officeless and hubless and asynchronous and I'm not sure that that is the ultimate. It might be for the employees, but I'm not sure whether it is for the client or the business. How do you envisage sort of you know you're you've got an engineering background? Um, what is the optimal do you think in terms of building effective teams, taking advantage of the sort of global arbitrage, um, you know, but 
Should they be in an office? Should they be all working from home? Should you have staff across 150 countries? Or do you feel it's better to sort of concentrate into hubs? Yeah, well, certainly um, from a technology standpoint, we're certainly not uh, at a perfect state uh, in terms of collaboration tools that we're using. Um, internally, we're working on a, on a really ambitious project for uh, better uh, collaboration uh, and management of remote teams, just that something that combines collaboration tools with more of an HRIS uh, team management and team engagement tool with gamification and uh, knowledge sharing and uh, those types of elements that uh, tend to be either missing or uh, our clients are having to use five or six different kinds of collaboration tools in order to get the job done and you know none of the tools kind of speak to each other. So, so having a better technology solution is, uh, is really important uh, because that's not going to be replaced. We're not going to suddenly, everyone's going to go back into one office. Uh, so um, then uh, balancing uh, the remote with the human-to-human in-person um, interactions. Uh, again, you know, we're not going to go back to full person-to-person, but we can't devalue it completely. Uh, and so uh, I think that companies are just going to have to come up with flexible solutions where they can get FaceTime with people. Hopefully it's, it's in-person, face-to-face if they can, because nothing can really replace that in terms of bonding, in terms of uh, people understanding each other uh, and willing to give their teammates the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but you know, companies have to understand that, they, uh, that they're going to have to be flexible and put in place um, the best technology, the best collaboration tools, and the best uh, methods for getting people FaceTime um, that they can uh, to manage their, their teams effectively. So uh, I don't think we're going to go back to a time when teams are all just in one office in one place. Uh, but I think there's still a long way to go for us to be able to optimize management of, of our remote teams that are spread around. And us as a company, uh, we as a BPO, we need to be able to service all of those models as well. So uh, that's why we, we do employer of record services. We do staff augmentation and we do fully managed services. So we're trying to be flexible as well because you know even within one client they need they may need uh, different types of solutions for different departments and certainly among our different clients they're all looking for something uh, slightly different so we just have to be there uh, to fit the right solution for our unique clients I'm always slightly amazed that you know I, I look at Silicon Valley and, and the VC market and there's a lot of money flooding into this um, PEO or EOR um, opportunity and, you know, whether it's remote or deal and things like that. Um, all of these, they're only three, four years old and they've raised 700 million, 500 million, 400 million from VCs, which is obviously a nod from VCs that, you know, this is potentially the future direction of employment. Yet um, outsourcing is often shunned by VCs or certainly, you know, offshore staffing, staff augmentation. They don't consider it to be an, an exciting industry. They don't think that it offers any sort of leverage in terms of sort of human capital. Um, what, I mean, I've sprung this on you, but do you do you kind of agree? I, I sort of see them as close cousins and yet um, it's like this PEO thing is brand new. Yeah, it's been on it's been around for the last you know, 30, 40 years kind of thing. I, com- I completely agree with you and I feel the exact same way. I'm also amazed to see these companies 
uh, raise that much money and put together these kind of you know global solutions that are automated. Uh, and I see the prices that they're charging, and they're really high, like higher than I know that you know is in the local market here for providing a lot more service. So, you know, I'm not sure what their value proposition is going to be going forward, and whether they they can continue to to try to uh, charge the the rates that they are. But what I see is the problem with trying to do a one size fits all solution for local employees is that. You know, there are so many different nuances in the different countries with regard to employing staff. And it's a very sensitive area because, of course, people take the rights of employees and the local labor laws very seriously in each market, especially somewhere like the Philippines, where someone might think, you know, hey, that's an outsourcing destination. You know, there's not going to be strict laws about how to treat employees or what you're going to do if you're going to terminate an employee. But it's exactly the opposite. You know, they, that, employees have a lot of power. And I look on some of the the EOR sites uh, and I look at their, say, Philippines setup and I don't see any mention of uh, separation pay at all. And so I'm wondering what happens, you know, at the end of employment and who covers the, you know, those kinds of issues or whether clients are sufficiently prepared um, for all of the different kinds of uh, considerations that, that come into play when they're actually employing workers in a place. And how can there be that? How can you have an employee and have there be such a, a disconnect or such a separation, you know, in your engagement of them by working through this third party? So I think that there's, you know, there's going forward, I think people will have to understand the role and the importance of companies that are actually there on the ground who have experience in employing people for many, many years and, and understand what employees expect uh, and what, um, you know, what's required of employers uh, to have a mutually beneficial relationship. If not, you know, it's not, you're going to have an employee, but they're not going to be happy and not going to be productive for you. So, so uh, I still see a really important role for companies like us. And I think that over time, uh, Maybe the the market and and capital will also understand understand that, and I feel very confident of our position uh, in 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 offering like EOR uh, employer record POE types of services uh, in the markets where we're operating uh, because I just feel like we can do it less expensively and we can do it a lot better uh, than those one size fits all global companies. It's true, isn't it? I mean, you know, they're specialising in the facilitation of employment, but but as you say, the, the devil's in the detail and employment is very nuanced. It's highly, highly regulated and every country is different. And also the employees' expectations of what employment means and their rights are are all very varied. And um, it will be interesting to see whether these sort of mega platforms can really do that and it's not even within government's interest to, well, certainly they're not, they're not motivated or incentivized to streamline everything and have everything in an, into a unified code. Maybe, maybe that will happen, you know, if more countries want to enter this offshore race and become sort of globally available and competitive, then maybe they'll start to unify their labor laws. But it's going to take, I would suggest, many decades for that to be consistency, yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Yes, definitely. And do you see, you know, we're digging in a bit deep here, maybe, but you know, the the rise of the sort of 
illegitimate worker, contract workers and things like that. I think it's sort of an unfortunate um, side effect of all of this remote work. Um, but um, most startup small companies, they think, well, look, we're just going to go contract. Um, but that really doesn't work, does it? You know, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's just not legitimate. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to see that as well. And, you know, if I was a small company and I was looking at the fees that are being charged, or you look on one of these sites and you see it's like $500 per month for uh, an employee versus $50, you know, management fee for a contract worker, of course, it's tempting just to to, to label them as a contract worker, even if they're a, your full-time employee. But, uh, you know, there's reasons why uh, countries have laws to protect employees and um, you know, and I think over time, employees also will gravitate towards places that are protecting their interests. And uh, eventually, you would think that uh, companies and employers who are doing things the proper way and giving employees their proper benefits will will benefit uh, by attracting the best workers. And then those who don't will, you know, be able to hire people that are less qualified, uh, more likely to leave. And so that, you know, ultimately uh, it, it will be, it will pay for people to, to, to do it the right way. And it, I think it's, uh, it's um, important for governments also to realize how much money they're losing by, by allowing, you know, payment methods outside of uh, proper channels and um, for people who are you know, getting money, you know, they, they, in the Philippines, they, they, they regulate it quite strictly with people working overseas. Something uh, similarly could some something similar could be put in place also for uh, contract workers who are being paid off the books. Uh, I would imagine because it's also part of their social contract, really, for these workers to to contribute to uh, the society that they live in. So, uh, so I think that that's also part of it uh, in terms of enforcing proper labor law. Yeah, it's certainly a, a hot topic of discussion um, in government uh, and across the, the outsourcing associations, you know, the industry itself obviously wants regulation as well to ensure that all people are properly employed uh, and there's not this dual, dual market. Andy, incredible. And, you know, I see a bright future ahead for us all. I think global employment, do you, do you think it's heading towards, you know, if we, if we zoom out 20, 30 years, do you think that there's going to be a singular global workforce? Is that what we're ultimately heading towards? Well, I think if you think idealistically and things progress in globalization and technology as they have, then uh, yes, I think it will be more so uh, in the future than now. Although, uh, you know, we can never predict with uh, absolute certainty uh, what might happen in the world. And um, there's also kind of retrograde forces uh, at work. Uh, so we always have to, you know, keep trying to uh, respond to all of the challenges. Uh, but uh, certainly, um, the positive forces of education uh, and uh, and skill up upskilling in places like the Philippines can only help uh, improve society and uh, and you know bring more money to uh, more people throughout society in these uh, developing nations and that's that's kind of what I hope you know that the positive forces went out uh, and it will help you know worldwide to to have everyone have access to the same jobs uh, as people in developed countries. There's, again, I don't want to spring this on you and that we can, we can close this off, but um, there was a complaint recently about OpenAI and the people, the humans behind 
AI. And as you might know, there's within any AI, there's a lot of annotation. There's a lot of human work that goes into actually creating the, the content produced. Um, and, you know, despite OpenAI now being worth billions and billions, the people actually doing the work were getting paid about $2 an hour uh, in Kenya. And um, there's a lot of criticism about this, and it then becomes this hot boiling point. And if we assume that $2 an hour is a reasonable, fair, safe salary for someone in Kenya, how, how, do, you, how do you think the world is going to come to terms with basically different costs of living, different salary expectations, uh, and, and sort of different levels of, of, a, of a fair salary? Yeah, I think when you think about it in realistic terms, though, uh, things can't change overnight, right? And uh, more jobs for a living wage, uh, more educational opportunities uh, in developing countries uh, will help them on their way. And that what you hope to see is what's happening in countries like India and the Philippines where wages are, are increasing. The differences between, uh, you know, the, the differences in labor arbitrage, even though it may be uh, the bread and butter for the BPO industry, those are, those are narrowing. And you just hope to see those, you know, from a, from a perspective of, of equality uh, throughout the world, you hope to see those, those costs narrow even further uh, as, as technology helps uh, people in developing countries to compete and education improves so that they have the skills to compete. But that's what you would hope to see happen in the future. So I don't think it's a, it's a negative uh, thing. I think it's a positive development uh, from my perspective, and it will help, help decrease global inequality as opposed to you know, increasing it, even though you see it more clearly uh, in this kind of scenario that you're just describing, um, that's just a snapshot of the current situation. But what you're seeing trend-wise is that there's a narrowing in that in that gap, I think. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's getting the thin end of the wedge in there, isn't it? It's getting economic activity in these countries and getting them uh, connected to the Western economy. Uh, and then it, it's it's improvement from there, but it's it's just getting everyone connected and and uh, trading together is the is the initial catalyst. Andy, thank you so much. I, I certainly challenged you with a, a couple of those questions, but um, really great talking to you. Fantastic story with SourceFit and of course your own journey. If anyone wants to reach out to know more about SourceFit or have a conversation about their outsourcing needs, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, you can uh, check out our website, sourcefit.com, or write an email to contact at sourcefit.com, and we'd be happy to speak with anyone who's interested in outsourcing or just like to talk about these kinds of issues. Brilliant. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Andy. That was Andy Shuktel. He is the president and CEO of SourceFit. As always, if you want to get in touch with Andy or know any more about SourceFit, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to reach out to us, just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.